and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Aaron Boyd, who's a grad student and researcher at the Department of Biology at the University of Alberta. June 1st marks the start of meteorological summer, and it certainly felt like it's been summer for the last few days. Sunny and warm weather. It almost makes you want to go into the water to cool off. But if you are outside, I certainly hope you're putting on the sunscreen in order to reduce that risk of skin cancer, which, according to the Canadian Skin Cancer Foundation, accounts for one out of every three diagnosed cases of cancer worldwide. And 80 to 90% of those skin cancer cases are caused by ultraviolet radiation, a.k.a. sunlight. Now, like a lot of the things and institutions that we've taken for granted in the last couple of years, we've had some reason to question whether or not sunscreen is as safe and as effective as we've been told, at least so far as taking our sunscreen-covered selves into the water. So, here's the question. Should everyone still be free to wear sunscreen? That's the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. In the fall of 2020, there was a study out of the University of Alberta that suggested that the active ingredients found in sunscreen might have detrimental effects on freshwater ecosystems. The researchers exposed water fleas, or Daphnia magna, to be more precise, to the three common ingredients in sunscreen, and the results showed that exposure to ultraviolet filters over a 48-hour period prevented the fleas from navigating through their environment. Space that out to 14 days, and the exposure was lethal to the Daphnia magna. This was kind of a big deal. Other studies had showed that ultraviolet filters were having an effect on very sensitive seawater life forms, like coral. But these are water fleas, one of the most common creatures found in almost every freshwater system everywhere. If they're feeling the effects from the ingredients in sunscreen leaching from people's skin while they're in the water, then what is the total environmental impact from these UVFs? What has had an impact, though, is the growing body of concerning data. Tourist destinations like Garuba, Palo, Thailand, and Hawaii have all banned sunscreen with UVFs from their beaches. But those are oceanfront beaches. Should fresh water destinations be doing the same? Well, not so fast, because the same team of biologists have just come out with a new report, and it says that while Daphnia, the water fleas, are affected by UVFs over time, those populations do recover, and they're able to repel the effects in subsequent generations. This was key in terms of the new research, which followed the lives of the fleas over months instead of weeks. So what's the message in the wake of these findings? Is the impact from UVFs as dire as maybe those initial concerns indicated? Aaron Boyd joins us on this episode of the Guelph Politicast to answer those and other questions. We will talk about how Boyd got into the study of sunscreen and its potential side effects on the environment the differences between studying the effects in salt water versus fresh water, and why Daphnia magna are the chosen test subjects for those experiments. We will also talk about the ingredients in sunscreen, the differences in the various types of sunscreen, and whether there's a similar concern about sunscreen leaching into pool water as there is 
in our lakes and rivers. And finally, we will discuss the difficulty in creating realism in the lab, where the research goes next, and why you can and should definitely wear sunscreen as you're having summer fun over the next couple of months. So I caught up with Aaron Boyd last week via Zoom. Okay, Aaron Boyd, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Happy to be here. Um, first things first, how does one uh, get involved in the study of sunscreen and the the potential effects of sunscreen on the natural environment? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So it's uh, the real story is pretty long and complicated, <laughs> but the simple answer is that uh, there's all sorts of different contaminants in the environment. Uh, so there's always new things to go and chase. Uh, so at certain points in time, different things will start to become more interesting. And so really, the simple answer is that sunscreens and uh, the UV filters that are contained within them just happen to be one of those hotter topics over the last few years. So that's how we got into it. (laughs) Um, Well, I was also meeting you personally, why is this a a particularly interesting topic for for you as a researcher? Oh, for me in particular? Okay, so... Uh, yeah, so what I like about this topic is that it's actually relevant to regular people. Uh, there's a lot of science that can be done, you know, very interesting science, I want to say. Um, but it's really only interesting if you understand that topic, if you're really deep into the weeds in academia. But if I talk to a regular person saying that, you know, I, I study sunscreen contamination, you know, they, there's like a light that goes off the head and they said, they're like, oh, cool. Like I, I use sunscreen. So how does this affect <laughs> me and, or, or what can I do to be different? Uh, so I really like that it has this connection to um, the world beyond just the immediate sphere of science. Right, right, right. I guess the first question is, um, in, in terms of the actual science and and the, and the study of it, sunscreen and you know i may be misremembering from when i was a kid but i i don't remember you know you know having sunscreen put on i'd go outside when i was a kid you know in the 80s it, it just it didn't seem like a part of the regular routine as it is now um when and you know also the uv index which also kind of correlates to that with U, uv index is high mom and dad say put on the sunscreen um so i guess just is this a problem that's kind of presented itself in recent years or concerns about it have presented itself in recent years is because of the increased use of sunscreen? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a couple of surveys from I'd say the last five to 10 years that are showing that the overall use of sunscreen is definitely going up. Um, So I think it comes down to a general awareness of what the consequences are. If you don't wear sunscreen, Um, you know, we're more aware of, you know, getting skin cancer or, or, you know, just the pain of having sunburns on your on yourself all summer long is not really something that people enjoy. So overall, there's been a big increase in awareness of, you know, being more proactive and taking care of yourself. And so then that's, that's also been one of the causes leading to the increased interest in studying these chemicals, too, it's because they're being used more. Let's talk about the ingredients then. Um and I appreciate that every company and every type of sunscreen has its own unique properties and all that. But just generally speaking, you go into Shoppers Drug Mart, you look for the sunscreen aisle, you take a bottle off the shelf. What What's in it, just generally speaking? Yeah, so uh, you can kind of break it into two main categories. The most lo- likely type of sunscreen you're going to grab are what we call organic sunscreens, which is what I work on. So 
you know, that'll have all the classic UV filters that you see being studied all the time. So with things like avobenzone, oxybenzone, octocrylene, um, those are also going to include a lot of other things to make those sunscreens more enjoyable for you to wear. So lots of moisturizers, there'll be right. some fragrances, uh, a lot of solvents as well to keep all these chemicals dissolved and, and a nice aerosol solution. Uh, and then depending on what you get, there could be things like tanning oils and things like that. Um, so that's that would be the most common type of sunscreen. Uh, those are really commonly used in the spray forms, but you can get them in lotions too. Um, and then the other type, which is a little bit less popular, would be what we call the inorganic sunscreens. Uh, those tend to come as the lotions, and they're really thick, and they contain uh, lots of minerals instead to protect your skin. So they would have things like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide instead. So they would use sort of metals instead of uh, organic chemicals instead. Uh -huh. um, so those ones are a little bit less popular, but you can still definitely go and buy them at pretty much any store that's selling sunscreens. And generally speaking, are are these like properly? Well, I guess they're all like properly labeled, but in terms of like knowing the difference between what's like an organic sunscreen and what's an inorganic sunscreen, like if I if I'm paying attention, can I get the former and not the latter? Yeah, if you go and look at the ingredient list, uh, they're pretty good at telling you exactly what the active ingredients are. Um, you're not going; they're not going to be labeled as inorganic versus organic. Right. That's just going to come down to you, you know, knowing what chemical is what. But uh, you know, the general rule of thumb is if you see um, the name of something that looks like a metal on the label, then you have inorganic sunscreen. And if it's um, you know a fancier, more complicated word, then you have an organic one instead. Okay. So if it's a little bit harder to um, read off the label, just in terms of your own pronunciation, you're probably in organic territory. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Then let's talk about your research then. When you're, are are you looking at the inorganic or the organic or, or are, are you looking at the full sort of like available sunscreens? And I guess, are, are you making... I, I imagine you're making those distinctions as you're doing research as well. Yeah, so we focus on organic uh, UV filters. Uh, so yeah, definitely when you're reading our papers, we always make sure to make this distinction that we're looking at specifically organics. Um, there's lots of people that look at the inorganic or the metal UV filter types instead, but we wanted to look at the organic ones because they are more popular uh, and because they also... Uh, seem to be present in the environment, uh, you know, in lakes and oceans and things like that at higher concentrations. Um, and they might potentially be slightly more toxic too, but that is something that's, you know, still up for debate. So mm -hmm. that's why we like to focus on the organic side of things. Mm -hmm. I think it probably came as a little bit of a surprise uh, when you, you first started publishing your research uh, in 2020 that this thing that you know, we, we now wear, as, as we've been talking about, it's sort of like a matter of course as, as a protective measure for the sun. It also has this downside when we go into the water. And I guess when, when you started your research, appreciating my, my knowledge of the scientific process is limited to high school science fairs, but the, <laughs> the um, when you started looking at the, the organic sunscreens, was it with the idea that there might be a problem? I guess what sort of like kicked off the the investigation uh so to how we got started on this is that uh we saw a study put out i believe it was 
mid-2019 from the U.S. uh, Food and Drug Administration or FDA. Uh, And what they had done is they were just taking urine samples from people that had worn sunscreen and they were measuring all of these organic UV filters in the blood of people wearing these uh, different products. Uh, And and the UV filters were lasting in the blood for a couple of days too. Um, So the the FDA put out a request for more research on these chemicals in general. Uh, Granted, they were looking specifically for research on the human toxicity side of things. But uh, our, our labs saw that and, you know, we thought, okay, we don't work with humans or, or model organisms that correlate well with humans, but it would be interesting to just look at the environmental side of things and see what's going on there as well. So just seeing that FDA study just kind of made us pause and think because uh, this wasn't uh, at all a topic that was on our radars. And so we were just doing a bit of, you know, looking through what had been published recently and we saw that, okay, these chemicals, they can contaminate um, different bodies of water and things like that. And, you know, in the right circumstances, they might potentially be a concern based off of um, the toxicity they have to specific animals. And so then we thought that this is something that we could, you know, contribute to and and, and look at the toxicity in, in freshwater animals instead. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Here's something that I think may may come up in sort of the minds of people and they're thinking about this. Like, aren't certain sunscreens supposedly, like... When you put it on, not supposed to dissolve in water. And if that's the case, like, wouldn't it make more sense that it, it would reflect in sort of like higher levels in us, sort of the toxicity versus um, if it were being sort of leached off the water? If if you know the the sunscreen was working according to the the promotional materials. <laughs> so yeah, so the labeling from the manufacturers on these products. Uh, can be inconsistent uh, in certain aspects. So I, I think what you're getting at here is that, you know, there's some sunscreens that are labeled as more water resistant right. than others. Uh, so my understanding is that kind of comes down to these specific products having the ability to still be effective for a certain period of time. So they're not going to come off immediately, but they are still going to be coming off of your skin. Right. Um, and, and so I if I can remember correctly, I believe that these more water resistant branded ones, they tend to advertise, you know, probably about an hour in the water. Um, mm. Is there, is there a general effectiveness? And, you know, if you're having a nice day at the the beach somewhere warm, you're probably going to spend a lot more than one hour <laughs> swimming around too. So you, it's still sure. going to be leaching off. Um, and then the other aspect is even if you're using these water resistant sunscreens, the other 90 people at the beach beside you might not be using the same product as you. Right. Um, and there are certainly a lot of different sunscreens that don't have that same, you know, branding of being water resistant that you might see in other locations. Right, right, right. And it always costs a couple of bucks more for perks like being water resistant too. So, um, let's start with the experiments. You you use waterflies in in your testing. Why waterflies? Yeah. So so they're called water fleas or, or daphne magna. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't uh, read my own writing. I apologize. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> I guess I'll just get out of here right now. So they're called fleas, but they're not actually parasitic to anything. Okay. Uh, they just look like fleas. Gotcha. So, so yeah, so they're called Daphnia magna. Uh, the reason why we like to use this use them is twofold. So number one, they're a well-established model in a scientific study. So we know a lot about how Daphnia specifically work. We know uh, all of their 
all the different genes that they have within them and how they respond to different situations and things like that. So there's a large foundation of knowledge already present for us to build off of. So then we can start to look at more specific uh, scenarios. Mm. And the second appeal is that Daphne are actually in the environment too, which is something that we can't say about a lot of different model species. Uh, so one thing, one animal that's really popular in science and toxicology research is a, a zebra fish, but they only live in one specific region of the world uh, in India. Whereas mm-hmm. Daphnia, if you, you stick a bucket of water into, you know, any lake across most of the world, you're going to pull up some Daphnia in that bucket of water. So they actually live in these environments that are being contaminated, um, mm-hmm. at, at least on the freshwater side of things. They're not marine animals. <laughs> right. And uh, now that we're talking about it, the, the, this distinction between sort of studying the freshwater ecology versus the saltwater ecology, uh, is there a particular reason why you're focused on freshwater? Well, being in Edmonton, we're far from the ocean, but Fair also <laughs> there's already a lot of people researching the saltwater side of things. Okay. Uh, so most of what we know in terms of the effects of aquatic contamination is uh, is in oceans. And so corals, for example, are probably the most sensitive um, animal that we've found so far. And so there's been a lot of studies looking at coral specifically, mm-hmm. and that's led to people researching other uh, marine animals too, like sea urchins and mussels and things like that. So there is a bit of a lack um, in terms of studying freshwater animals that are actually found in a lot of different environments. There are studies of freshwater animals, um, but a lot of them are in zebrafish, for example. And so that's not necessarily as relevant to the the real world. Uh, that being said, there are definitely studies of a lot of different um freshwater fish species for example that that are more relevant to which is great mm-hmm. um i i guess along with that too is there different creatures are are differently sensitive to to the various additives and this can be said about a whole bunch of different things how a coral is going to react to the different ingredients in sunscreen might be different from the the daphnia as as we're talking about yeah, absolutely. So overall, freshwater and saltwater uh, invertebrates are much more sensitive. So, you know, small water bugs like what we're working with, Daphnia, are, I would say, probably one of the top five species in terms of sensitivity, with corals being number one on that scale. Um, before I got into Daphnia, I actually did a little bit of testing with these same chemicals in zebrafish uh, because I had access to them at the time. And Fish generally just don't care about these <laughs> chemicals at all. <laughs> so you can expose them to concentrations that go way past um, how much you can actually dissolve in water normally, and they don't really respond. So, which is great um, in terms of the environment side of things. Right. I, I guess what does that what does that teach us about the zebrafish, or, or I guess yeah what does that teach us about the zebrafish in terms of their taunt like they can just like take a licking and keep on ticking i guess is that is that what the takeaway <laughs> uh comparatively uh especially when you're comparing them to daphnia uh so we, we like working with daphnia because they're very sensitive uh in the grand scheme of things and so they're they're a great sentinel uh species so if if we expose Daphnia to a chemical and the Daphnia don't care, uh, there's a, that's a good indication that, you know, this probably isn't something that's going to be a big concern in the grand scheme of things. Mm. So fish being pretty tolerant and uh, it, water invertebrates being more sensitive is not the most surprising thing in the world. It kind of fits with um, 
what we know uh, across all sorts of different contaminants, um, daphnia and corals, and things like that tend to be much more sensitive um, by nature. Mm-hmm. So when you're exposing the, the daphnia to the, to the various ingredients, um, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it stupidly. You're obviously not putting sunscreen on insects, right? <laughs> not directly <laughs> so so how does that work how do you, like how does the exposure work uh so it depends on what exactly we're looking at so what we started out studying uh is, is what most people in the field are doing actually where we just purchase uh samples of pure uv filters so we have just one single chemical and we just dissolve that into the water um at a specific concentration and then let the animals live in that water for a set amount of time. Uh, usually it could be two days or four days. Uh, we like to go for three weeks because that's the standard with daphnia. Um, and so, yeah, so we use individual chemicals and so we can control exactly how much you're being exposed to. Uh, but what we've actually gotten into just over the last four months is we just went and bought some actual sunscreens from the store because we wanted to see what we might be missing ignoring all of the other components of these sunscreen uh, products. Uh, and so that, you know, that follows a pretty similar process where you just, you know, make a big batch of water and you just <laughs> spray a lot of sunscreen into it um, in simple terms. And then you see okay. what happens, but we're still waiting on getting the, uh, some of the data back for this project. So it's not available yet, but I'm hoping to have it out pretty soon though. Okay. Um, going back to the original findings in, in 2020 and, one of the reasons we're talking now is that you've just released sort of new research and, and new findings, but looking back at 2020, um, contextualizing things have changed, but you know, when, when you release those findings, um, I, I guess what was, what was revealed there that we didn't know before about the, the effects in the freshwater ecosystems about sunscreen. So if you're looking at that 2020 paper, what was shocking for us was how toxic octocrylene was. Um, for the other two chemicals we tested, avobenzone and oxybenzone, uh, we found toxicity, but you needed really high concentrations to see it. And so that pushes them a bit beyond what you would find in a really contaminated environment. But for octocrylene, because it was toxic at much lower concentrations, that was getting dangerously close to being toxic at concentrations that have been measured um, in different uh, lakes and rivers before. And so then that sets off a lot of alarm bells when we're trying to figure out what risk these chemicals pose, because now we're kind of having this overlap of, of what concentrations cause toxicity and what concentrations an animal could realistically encounter uh, if they were a little bit unlucky in terms of where they happen to live. And so that, that got us interested in investigating the, specific chemicals more so that we could see is this actually a problem or is this um more of a false alarm based off of how we studied that specific um chemical and just to to interrogate something you said there um it, it sounds like that there are factors beyond just having the chemical in the environment is is that is that this like there there are other components that sort of make it the, the toxicity sort of more persistent other than just it being there. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that could be a whole other podcast interview, <laughs> but uh, let's get into it. Um, I'm glad you asked that question. So yeah, when we do these studies, we follow standardized protocols that 
you know, we've kind of agreed on as toxicologists and ecotoxicologists as a whole. So you typically take isolated chemicals and then you use animals that you've raised in the lab under very specific conditions. Um, and these lab animals compared to their wild ca- counterparts in the environment are very pampered. Mm-hmm. So they get very consistent <laughs> temperature, very consistent food. They don't know what a predator is and they right. don't have to deal with pathogens and diseases or, you know, heat domes coming through every s- summer and things like that. Right. So they get a very stable and welcoming environment to live in, which, you know, lets them focus more of their energetic resources on fighting the contaminants that we expose them to. Uh, whereas, you know, creatures in the real world, there's all sorts of variability going on There's they have to run away from predators and, you know, fight competing with all of these other animals that are present in that same ecosystem and things like that, which can be a pretty big cost to them and and so then that might leave them with less energetic resources to spend dealing with these contaminants instead so if we follow just the standard models that um, we've all generally agreed on in terms of testing there's a lot of other variables that we're missing out on which could really change the outcome um, when we're trying to figure out if these are things that we need to be concerned about Mm -hmm. I guess how much harder does that sort of make the the application of the research sort of like in the real world, because you have to take those variables into account. Um, but you know, one water fly or one water flea does not live the same life as another water flea in outside of the lab setting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's a, it's a huge challenge. Um, and that's kind of what we've been getting into with all of the research we've done after that 2020 papers, we're now trying to pull in other variables that are relevant to the real world that could be influencing these results. So um, my impression was when you originally reached out to me that you had seen the paper that we put out in January. Uh, And so for that one, we basically just replicated the 2020 study, except we let these animals spend much more time in contamination. So we let them grow up. Um, have uh, have children and then we would raise those children up right uh, and so on and so forth and so we exposed these Daphne over five generations for the second experiment instead of just one and then that completely changed the uh, outcome for us in terms of what we thought of these chemicals so in that second study we still saw you know pretty high toxicity in certain cases especially over the first two generations that we exposed these uh, Daphne but then by the fifth generation, they just didn't care about these chemicals anymore. Um, they were still present at the exact same concentration that they had been at the first generation. But given a longer period of time, they were able to acclimate, uh, you know, make make adjustments to how they interact and respond to this these contaminations uh, to allow them to just thrive more than they, they would have with just a single generation exposure. And so... What I really like about this second study is that uh, if we just follow our prescribed standard test, we would have completely missed this outcome Mm. Um, because, you know, the the conclusion from the first paper was, okay, these chemicals might actually be a concern uh, for Daphnia. But then from the second paper, now we're much less concerned because if we have an actual contaminated environment, uh, we're going to have, you know, Daphnia living a full life cycles and they're going to be having babies and their babies will be having babies all, all raised in contamination this whole time. 
And so then that more closely matches this second study where it's showing that, okay, they actually have diminishing um, toxicity over time if you let these animals actually adjust to their new environment. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, though. Is, is saying that they were unaffected, is that the same as saying that there's kind of no damage or, or, or kind of like no lingering effects? Like they're able to adapt, but is adaptation uh in 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 indicative of having i i guess of of being healthy i guess is what in in terms of like would they be as healthy if they hadn't if the previous generations had not been exposed to the chemical at all and so that's the main question that's left over from this second paper uh so sure they they're able to tolerate exposure to these chemicals over a long period of time but then if something else happens that is stressful to these Daphnia, you know, like maybe there's a big spike in temperature or, you know, food becomes scarce for a, a couple of weeks or something like that. They could actually be in a weaker state that we're just not able to detect. And so then mm. this other thing happening, which we would call a secondary stressor, could be enough to push them over the edge. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we weren't able to look at with this study. But uh, it's something that I would love. Uh, you know, for somebody to follow up with and 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 test that because that's a, that's a big outstanding question that we don't have an answer for yet. Hmm. So we we come to the conclusion that maybe um, these things are not having the impact on the environment that we initially thought that they might be. I guess does that mean that we can, you know, if. <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, you don't want to say to people like, "Don't wear sunscreen." Obviously, there there is a protective measure to that. But are we also saying that, you know, there's, you know, you can wear sunscreen. You can wear it into, you know, the lake, or if you're you're, you know, up by the beach here in Guelph, Guelph Lake, and um, everything's going to be fine. And the the effect on a, the local wildlife is ultimately negligible because um, they they will adapt. Yeah, so that's every single interview <laughs> I've ever done. I've been asked the question of should we still be wearing sunscreen? So, right. Yes, absolutely wear them. Uh, the effects for us are much more severe than the effects on the environment. But uh, to get at your question in terms of should we still be wearing sunscreen or do we have to be worried about it? I, th- I would say it's very context specific. And mm. there's already been a lot of positive steps towards addressing this already. So my main concern would be if you're going snorkeling to look at a coral reef or something like that, I wouldn't go and and put on a ton of sunscreen containing chemicals that we know are pretty devastating to corals when I go and do that snorkeling expedition. So then I would be more concerned about wearing an alternative product that is less toxic to corals instead. Um, But, you know, if you're jumping into lakes near Guelph, and, you know, they're not going to find any corals out there. Right. Uh, there'll be Daphne in that lake, but uh, it would take a lot of people swimming simultaneously, wearing a lot of sunscreen to raise the contamination levels to the point where it starts to become a major issue. So it's not something that you have to lose sleep over. Um, mm-hmm. We're doing a lot worse things to the environment <laughs> than wearing sunscreen. <laughs> so I'll just get that out of the way right now. Um, fair, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I guess the, the part of this too is, um, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily go to a lake uh, to, you know, to to enjoy swimming. 
a lot of people have swimming pools or they have nearby access to public swimming pools, some of which are outside. And if you're outside, you're putting on the sunscreen, hopping in the pool, hopping out again. Um, this may be a little far afield of your research, but it is, is there reason to be concerned about where that water goes um, once the pool is drained or is, is, is that another one of those things? Cause you know, we put all sorts of stuff in swimming pool water as well. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an awesome question. So that's going to really depend on where you live. Mm. Uh, so there's, you know, two main routes that these UV filters end up in the environment. Number one is, you know, what we've been talking about, you go and put on sunscreen, and then you go jump in the ocean, and it comes off of your skin. Number two is going through wastewater treatment plants. Um, so depending on where you live, if your wastewater treatment plant doesn't have advanced enough treatment processes, these UV filters will pass straight through um, and get pumped into whatever receiving body of water is on the other end of that plant. And, and so that could be a major source of contamination too. So uh, what's really effective are wastewater treatment plants that have more, more modern processing methods like using UV sterilization is probably the best way to break down these chemicals. Mm. So the general rule of thumb, especially in Canada, I would say is that if you live more inland uh wastewater treatment tends to be more advanced and more effective if you live on a coastal area um, because there's such a large volume of water to receive this wastewater effluent it can dilute all the chemicals that are left over quite effectively so there's less pressure on coastal regions generally to invest all this extra money into treating their wastewater as effectively interesting interesting okay yeah so in guelph uh i'm not i don't know the specifics of what you guys have going on in terms of wastewater treatment in guelph but i that's would fine. if i had a guess i would say probably more advanced okay so less yeah. of a concern yeah. for pool water that's going to be draining into these treatment plants eventually well I, you know i don't i never expected you to understand the intricacies of our wastewater system but you know guelph is uh a community that takes its uh, drinking water and and water resources from the local groundwater. So I, I think it's um, it, it is largely understood. We we take extraordinary caution because of the the precariousness of those resources. Um, I guess maybe to wrap up, where does the research go from here? Um, you know, we we there was a cause for concern. Um, what what you've kind of revealed is that context it sort of matters more than the, the factor of the the thing itself um so you know what where do you go now with the research so where we've already gone that we're working on publishing right now is you know as i mentioned earlier looking at the rest of the sunscreen mixture um so the field overall only looks at the uv filters or the active ingredients and all these other chemicals that are present in the sunscreens have the potential to interact with the UV filters and it can really change the toxicity of them. And so we just looked at, you know, the whole sunscreens. We just bought them from the store, put that straight into water, trying to, you know, simulate somebody going swimming and having all of the sunscreen leaching off. And it turns out that uh, they're far less toxic than what you would expect based off of our tests of just individual UV filters. So much less toxic that, you know, it really makes me say that, okay, these are not chemicals that we really need to be concerned about unless we have like very, very high contamination in an area that has, you know, a lot of coral reefs. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what we've done already or working on finishing up. And then where we're going next at the end of this summer is uh, a bit more stressful for us uh, as <laughs> Daphnia researchers. So the other thing that we're kind of ignoring is that when we have all of these toxicity studies using lab animals, you know, like I said, they have a very pampered life. They don't have to worry about, you know, anything stressful, really. And so our Daphnia lineage, uh, and this is something that's true about almost all researchers that use Daphnia, they've been raised in a lab for, you know, decades. So they could have, you know, really changed compared to the Daphnia that are actually living in lakes across the world. And so uh, actually two days ago, I went to a lake near Edmonton and I caught a whole bunch of Daphnia from that lake. And now we're going to see if they are at all similar in terms of response to the ones we've been holding in the lab, which... um, it's a little bit terrifying because if they're very different, you know, that <laughs> raises a lot of problems for Daphnia researchers everywhere. But mm-hmm. that's what we're going next. Interesting. And I, just, I know I said I was wrapping up, but th- the important point is here that, you know, you've gotten findings, you did your research, but th- there is an important aspect to this too, to have to keep like keep replicating, introducing new variables and, and keep testing to make sure that the results you and, and that's sort of how we got here is right. You, you know, you, you and your, your colleagues didn't sort of let those initial findings just sit. You, you went back and revisited them. And this is a kind of a, 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 a key, an important point of the scientific inquiry here. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we happen to find that Daphnia can be quite all right once we add in these other variables, but maybe other animals are not. And, you know, maybe, uh, other species we haven't tested yet are incredibly sensitive and that could be a problem. So yeah, we need to replicate not only the studies that, you know, I've done directly with Daphnia, but just answering other questions too, expanding our knowledge to um, answer other questions. So there will absolutely be people that uh, agree with my perspective that these aren't chemicals we need to be worried about. And there's going to be people that completely disagree with me based off of their own findings too. Uh, and you know, and that's quite all right. And that's, that's completely normal with how we do our research. So yeah, definitely welcome people to continue studying this topic just so that we can be sure that we're not missing something that could, mm-hmm. you know, again, change our perspective on this. Mm-hmm. But for now, everybody's free to wear sunscreen, uh, at least as so long as they're not uh, getting up close to some uh, saltwater coral, but uh, we'll have to leave it there. Aaron Boyd, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. And once again, that was Aaron Boyd. You can find links in the show notes to the original articles about Boyd's research on the website for the University of Alberta. You can also find a link to the team's recent paper, which was published in the March issue of the Journal of Hazardous Materials. Boyd and his colleagues are working on the next steps in their research now, but in the meantime, just to reiterate, it is definitely okay to wear sunscreen while you're out in the water this summer. Don't leave home without it. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. 
You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. (laughs) 